listening to the Girls Get Off podcast, an R18 podcast on all things female pleasure. Think girl talk, but real girl talk, where we chat all things masty, self-loving, sex, orgasms and more. Nothing is off limits, which means you get all the secrets, even our guests BFFs don't know. We're on a mission to make talking about getting off as fun as actually doing it. Ready to join the Mastination? Let's get into it. Hi and welcome back to the Girls Get Off podcast. Thanks so much for joining us and today we have an amazing guest on but before we get into it, what did you think of that episode, Jo? Um, I actually think this intro can be short because I loved it. It was uh, like I had so many ah moments in there, like it made so much sense. It was a different like take on what I've heard before and just, yeah, really relatable, really cool. I could see your face during the episode just like working things over in your mind you know like (laughs) the machine was working but yeah it was and I think um all the chat around like non non non-monogamy I feel is something that um unless you're in it there's probably not a lot of exposure to so it was really fascinating to hear that from her perspective of someone who works majority where the majority of her clients are (laughs) The majority, majority of their clients are in this space. So, yeah, it was fascinating and super helpful for those um, even in the monogamous space or especially with her chat around libido, which we know from our audience is something that affects a lot of people. And, like, yeah, and just that mismatched libido or mismatched – what did you uh, – desire, desire discrepancies. Um, discrepancies? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, gosh. Yeah. What a cool. Amazing. <laughs> and so just a little bit of background around Yana. Yana Tallenhick, licensed marriage and family therapist, is a couples and relationships therapist and a consent sex and sexuality writer and educator living in Western Massachusetts. Her work centers around the belief that pleasure positive and consent based sex education can positively impact our lives and the world. Welcome to the podcast, Yana. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And tell us a little bit more about how you came to be this incredible sex therapist and educator. Um, I usually tell people that like the long timeline is that I was a teenage girl trying to figure out sex and sexuality. And so that I sort of like organically figured my way to here. Um, but technically speaking, I studied sex and sexuality in my undergrad, and then I got my master's degree in um, marriage and family therapy with a, and I focus on sex therapy. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, Wow. Wow. And you've, you've just released a book, like you've been doing this for quite a while. Are there any parts of your job that are your favorite or are you, you know, across everything? Um, I kind of, it's funny because like anybody else, like my job is a job, like I go to work and I do my job and a lot of it's on Zoom these days with COVID and things. Um, But sometimes when I look at what I've done during the day on paper, it's actually kind of funny. Like it seems so, um, I don't know, like taboo, right? I'm like, oh, I talked to this couple about how to have like a kinky threesome. And then I talked to this person who's trying to have an orgasm. And then I talked to these people that want to like open their relationship. Then I talked to this person about like having sex for the first time ever and how they're scared. And you know, it's like on paper, it looks so kind of glamorous. But in reality, I'm like, sometimes I get tired of talking <laughs> oh my gosh and you've just released this you you've just released or launched I don't know what you normally call it this book called hot and unbothered how to think about talk about and have the sex you really want is that something that um you know is a big pain point for some of your clients or the people that you speak to 
Yeah, I mean, I've been writing a sex column for over 10 years now, so I've been doling out written sex advice for a long time, and writing the book sort of became this natural trajectory where it always felt like that would happen at some point, Um, and so it was really exciting when it actually did, and I think for me, at least, I feel like my last 10 years of writing sex advice and my last five years of being a sex therapist have all come together in this one book. And so I feel like it really encompasses almost all of the common things that I see coming from people, like the most common conundrums that I see coming from people that they need help with. And I've always been a perfectionist and I've always been long-winded. And so (laughs) it made sense to me to just put as much as possible in the book. (laughs) I love the name of it, by the way. Um, Hot and Unbothered. So great. So great. Um, what can you touch on that though? What is the most common thing you see coming through? Um, for me, the most common thing I work with people on is non-monogamy. And I also work with people who are having some kind of a desire discrepancy, whether that's what kind of sex they want to have or one person feels like they have a lower libido and the other person feels like they have a higher libido. I think those are probably the most common, but I think like overarching wise, people are really just looking for a place to talk about sex openly. Nice. Yeah, I think for you to pick that up. So when you first decided to kind of get into this, like it's only just becoming kind of normalized now, right? Like when you, you were definitely ahead of the game, weren't you? I try. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm just thinking it must have been a really taboo topic when you decided to start going into this area. Yeah, well, I write about this a little bit in the book that it really did happen very organically for me. So I was starting to have my own sex life in high school. And when I was in high school, I graduated high school in 2004. So we didn't really have access to Google or social media based sex ed. We kind of just had whatever we could find because school based sex ed wasn't really giving us a lot. And that hasn't really changed, at least here in the States. I don't know how y'all are doing over there, but here we're not doing a great job, Um, which is no shocker. But so I feel like for me, I was very much like, okay, everyone's sort of obsessed with this sex thing, but like no one's really talking about it. Like we kind of hear the salacious parts or like what's like, I don't know, like stands out to people in terms of like, I feel like when I was in high school, that advertisement with Paris Hilton, like sexily eating a Big Mac on top of a car came out. And that was sort That's of so like, funny. Her name's come up in a podcast yesterday really? as well. Yeah. So <laughs> Such a defining character in people's childhoods. Oh, yeah. That's funny. Yeah. I mean, I watched, there's some documentary, like all behind the scenes with her. And I'm like, oh, Paris Hilton's actually very interesting. But that was, I feel like that advertisement really encapsulated my sex education experience where it was sort of like, okay, like sex is interesting to people and it's attention grabbing but like what's up like my actual experience of sex is very clunky and strange and sort of like I don't know like the stuff I was hearing from my friends just felt really kind of questionable and I was like do you like doing this like (laughs) and I just got really into over communicating in my sex life and I kind of just haven't stopped and I think that's been so beneficial to me that I was just like, yeah, like other people need to learn how to do this. 
And yeah. when I was 18, I was about to start my undergrad and my best friend was like, you should give sex advice for a living. And I was like, people don't do that. And then I was like, oh, wait, yes, they do. And so I kind of just went that direction. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I love the way you described it as, as clunky as well. I think that's so relatable yeah. to, you know, the start of people's sex life. Wow. I mean, sometimes it's still clunky. A hundred percent. And I'm really interested because you mention um, the term non-monogamy and how that's such a big part of your work. Can you explain to the people listening what that might look like? And then, you know, some examples of how that comes up in relationships and how you explore that with your clients? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, monogamy is sort of what we see in fairy tales where people like two people meet and then they fall in love, and then they get married, and then they buy a house, and then they have kids. Not all monogamy <laughs> works that way, but that's like our classic vision of what monogamy is. Um, our vision of non-monogamy is sort of a lot of variety of non-exclusivity. So for some people, that means they're emotionally open to other partners. For some people, that means they're sexually open. For some, they're romantically open. For some, it's like all of the above. And what that looks like is very varied. So it could be like a clopin-ish relationship where it's like we have a free pass once a year when we're out of town to sleep with somebody. It could be a polyamorous relationship where you're dating and falling in love and pursuing relationships with multiple people at the same time and it's all above board. Um, It could be you want to have threesomes but you don't date separately. And I tend to end up with a lot of clients who have been a monogamous couple for several years and are looking to open their relationship for the first time, which interestingly to me has gotten more common since the pandemic has entered the picture and then sort of alleviated. I think people are like starting to really question what human connection and sexuality looks like, given that we could not touch another person for so long. I mean, I've heard rumors that you all really had this on, uh, I wanted to say on lockdown, but that's not true. The opposite of on lockdown. <laughs> we did not. Have yeah, that's so true. Yeah. So it's been yeah. very isolating. And I think couples have come out of this really starting to think about what what is left for them to explore. Um, and wow. my area that I live in, the joke is like, oh, you're monogamous? How weird. Because there's so much non-monogamy going on here. Wow. <laughs> that's so funny. Wow. And so how, do, how does this normally work with a couple? Like I can imagine that that's something that could be really hard or uncomfortable to bring up with your partner. Yeah, I think that, well, I feel like for the most part, I see people who have already sort of broached the topic and are like, we need help figuring this out. But for other people, they are definitely like, I've decided that being non-monogamous is really important to me and I don't know how to talk about it. Um, But usually, I really like to talk to people that have decided to be non-monogamous about it, like all relationships, monogamous or not require a ton of work and it requires a lot of bravery to break the pattern that you've been in with a long-term partner and so it could be anything you know it could be like you want to have a kid or it could be you want to move or it could be whatever this is going to require the same amount of work that i would do with a monogamous couple who's learning how to communicate and and kind of voice what they want and what they desire in the face of knowing that maybe their partner is going to react maybe okay maybe not 
Yeah, I I'm just impressed that um, people actually come to you before they start. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, bringing another person into the relationship and stuff like just being that proactive, like. Yeah. Go you guys. Yeah, it's interesting. I think because like there's obviously something in the water here (laughs) that it's a relationship style that people are kind of cognitively exposed to. And so I feel like for the most part, people know that the quote unquote best way to go about this is to be above deck from the get go. And of course, some people come to non-monogamy by way of somebody had an affair and then they realize, oh my God, monogamy is just not going to work for us and we have to figure something else out. That's not ideal. Like if you want to go by the book, but. Yeah. Yeah. It's really healthy way of doing it. Mm -hmm. Having those conversations first. Yeah. And so then what would be some like tips or conversation starters for those in relationships who maybe wanted to switch things up? Mm, Like with monogamy or just like sex in general? With monogamy. Oh, um, some conversation starters. So usually I recommend that. So let's say I want to be non-monogamous and I really don't know how my partner is going to take that decision or suggestion, I would want to come to that conversation with, and it depends on what your partner already knows. Like again, in this area, they probably already have a bunch of non-monogamous friends, but if they didn't, you would want to have like some resources available for your partner to be able to look at when you're not around. And because if they go online and they're like Googling what's non-monogamy, they're going to find a lot of different opinions and a lot of different resources, and they might not reflect the type of non-monogamy that you are interested in in particular. So you want to have something to give them at the end of the conversation so that they can think about it and take their time. I definitely recommend people do not have this conversation when someone is quote unquote waiting in the wings, because that can be a challenging oh I just got that (laughs) (laughs) so if you're like hey I'm thinking I want to be open and then you're like oh by the way I super want to have sex with my coworker." um yeah that can be a challenge that does happen (laughs) oh god I also think it's really important to talk to your partner about why non-monogamy is important to you and to make sure that you're giving focus time to strengthening your dyadic, like the two of you, your bond, um, and hammer out stuff that needs hammering out there. So like people want to pursue non-monogamy for all kinds of reasons. But if you're like, oh, our sex life has kind of like floundered and I'm like bored, I think I'm just going to go have sex with other people. <laughs> that's not really like giving it a good college try. I would recommend like working on your... <laughs> your coupled sex life and the non-monogamy piece simultaneously like you don't write advice i mean i think that's why people end up with me is because they're like i mean it's a tough topic even if even if both people in the couple are super on board like my version of non-monogamy could be totally different than my partner's version And so in that case, we really want to talk about what kind of boundaries, the way I look at it is like concentric circles. So what kind of boundaries would feel pretty easy to do today, right? Like go out and have coffee with another person or like go make out with somebody and then come home. I think I can deal with that. What kind of boundaries might be more of a stretch for me, right? Like you having sex with somebody else, I'm going to have to like harness my 
coping strategies and like deal with myself or whatever. (laughs) Um, And then kind of your total dream, the outside circle is like, what's the end goal? What's the dream? Like, do you want to live on a polyamorous commune with like all your lovers or are you wanting to just have sex with somebody random and interesting once a year? Like, what's the dream? And I think if people can't talk about that, then and you just like jump in, you're gonna just like crash and have a hard time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I still get so amazed that like every podcast we do, I'm like, why didn't I look at it like this way before? <laughs> <laughs> it seems just like common sense, hey. But yeah. Oh, it's yeah. Yeah, and my whole thing about just like being like a couples, I see individuals, I see couples, and I see more than two relationship structures. So I've had three, four or five people in their room before, if they're in a non-monogamous structure talking about their relationship. Wow. So to me, I'm all about like any relationship can have designer boundaries agreements, as long as you're all talking about what they are. Wow. And you know yeah. what you are bringing to the table and you know what's your work and you know what's the work of the relationship that needs to be done. And honestly, the stuff that I work on with all of those clients is all pretty much the same. It's like self-awareness and communication and handling your jealousy and attachment stuff and like getting out of your own way, essentially. So we're all a lot more similar than we think. Yeah. Gosh, imagine like... I think we should do couples therapy and then bring all five of you <laughs> Well, it's not couples therapy then. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's, just, it's just a group I, session. I just like, what do you uh-huh. call it? I, I have called it Orgy par- therapy. partner's therapy. <laughs> partner's therapy. Partner's therapy. That's good. That's good. Oh, my gosh. Wow. But I love those sessions when you're like, do we have enough chairs? <laughs> 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 it keeps things interesting it's a lot of dynamics i bet i bet gosh like every day would be so different and so you mentioned the you mentioned the pandemic and how that's maybe changed things for the non-monogamy piece but how about some of the changes that you've seen with monogamous partners mm-hmm. i think that people have i mean for better or worse you people were forced to face the choices they have made yeah (laughs) you know yeah Um, do I really like this person (laughs) do I really like this person I had a baby and he was five months old when the pandemic hit and I was like oh my god the timing of this I mean I wanted a baby forever and he's the best he's three now which like really wow all that in perspective but being yeah. on lockdown in the middle of winter with an infant was not ideal. <laughs> it was really intense. So oh I think, you know, people were really forced to be like, okay, like if you look at a cracked foundation in a relationship and then you put like 10 tons of pandemic pressure on top of it, you're going to learn some stuff, right? So like for some people, it really brought them closer together in terms of how do you face a worldwide emergency together. For some people, it really highlighted the value of like, holy shit, like when I thought about being in a partnership, I did not ever want to be with you 24-7 in the same (laughs) freaking house and not be able to see anybody else. 
And yeah. for some people, it was actually really good for their sex lives because it stripped away all of the, the distractions of like the go, go, go life that was going on before the pandemic. And then for other people, they came out of the pandemic feeling like they had just dodged like a near-death experience and were like, I need to do something <laughs> else with my life. Yeah. I mean, there Did was you... a like good stretch at the beginning of the pandemic where I was like, holy shit, we're all going to die. Like, this is it. You know? And it was like... <laughs> yeah. So unknown. It was hey. intense. Yeah. Um, was it anyone... <laughs> After the pandemic, I don't know why I'm finding this amusing, um, but was there anyone after the pandemic that had been in like a polyamorous relationship and got into lockdown with one person and had like a, a that's the only thought that's been mm -hmm. going through my head. Oh, right yeah, now. that oh was my, a oh big my gosh, deal. That would be a sticky situation. Yeah. yeah. So we had I had I mean, I, I always have. The majority of my caseload is always some kind of non-monogamous something. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if you've heard the term consensual non-monogamy. That's like the idea is like the non-monogamy starts with consent. Like we're open. We talk about it. Yeah. My partner and I were joking that the pandemic was non-consensual monogamy. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't see anyone else. And yeah. you're just like, what the hell? But I had people who had partners from out of state that like got stuck like in New York and couldn't come see them. Or I had people who had partners that were in other countries that they were used to having these super long distance partnerships with that they were like, I don't know if I'm ever going to see you again. Like what's going on? You know, cause we couldn't move anywhere. Like yeah. we couldn't travel. Or I had people who like shared households non-monogamously and that was really beneficial because like childcare, for example, they had extra hands on deck or people yeah. would pot up in their polycules and sort of like- Polycules? Do things that way. <laughs> Or some people had like um, different risk profiles, you know, everybody sort of dealt with things differently. Like some people would continue to see other people. Some people really wouldn't leave their homes. And that was really stressful for people too. And then within a poly dynamic where like, you know, this person, this person, whatever, you have all your agreements, all these people might have different ideas of what an acceptable risk is. Wow. And so it was just really hard. And I think I was really used to having some level of answers for people where they would be like, I feel jealous. What do I do? And I'd be like, here's my advice. And during the pandemic that I was also living through, <laughs> yeah. people would be like, what do we do if my partner has a different risk level than my other partner about the pandemic? I was like, I don't know. You know like, <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. Oh wow. Um okay. So you just brought up jealousy mm -hmm. and here's my advice. What are your tips um to get over the jealousy which I guess would be the roadblock for so many people mm -hmm. thinking about going into a non-monogamous relationship yeah. yeah I really like to sort of like dissolve the like the starkness of the boundary between monogamy and non-monogamy and usually what I ask people is like okay like let's think about what do you think would be some challenges in a non-monogamous dynamic and it's like jealousy is usually the first thing um 
trying to figure out like fear of the unknown, right? You don't know what's going to happen. Um, sex life issues, safer sex concerns. How do you talk to your kids about relationships? Um, like sadness of dynamics end. And I usually like to add on a packed schedule. <laughs> Calendaring <laughs> is a big deal. And then I like to be like, okay, how many people have been in a monogamous relationship who have faced any of these things? And we run down the list and everyone's like, oh, me, 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 right? Like jealousy, yeah. all that stuff like impacts everybody in a relationship. With non-monogamy, it can bring that stuff closer to the best and have it be more apparent. Because I think monogamy, the idea is, oh, you're never going to do anything to hurt me. You're never going to leave me. And we all know that's not true. So we all have to face that same thing. So whether you're non-monogamous or monogamous, if you're handling jealousy, I usually tell people, first of all, use jealousy as a check engine light. What does your gut say? Like, is your, like, cause I don't want people to like gaslight themselves. Cause I've had people be like, I feel jealous. My partner is like being really shady with this other person. And it's like, then turns out they are being shady, you know? And you don't want to sit here being like, I just need to work on my self-esteem while your partner is like actually being a jerk or like violating a boundary. So I always tell people to check in with their gut. Um, Jealousy can also be a check engine light around sort of like, are the agreements in your partnership um, accurate? Like, are they being respected? Are they what they need to be? Because some people try really hard to be like super chill. When in reality, they're just like really like activated and having a super hard time and not talking about it. And I'm like, that doesn't work. So you have to talk about it. Then I tell people to try to look at it like, what can you do for yourself? Right. So that's like get support from your friends, get support from your therapist, work on your own insecurities, work on your kind of like attachment activation, like abandonment issues, whatever. Um, stop comparing yourself to other people. That's what you can do for yourself. What can you ask your partner to do for you? So that could be like reassurances, making special date nights. Um, I don't know, other things. Doing your love language for you, etc. cetera. Um, and then what is it that you can collaborate on together? So what kind of structural stuff needs to happen to keep your relationship intact? And if you think about all of those things, that is helpful in monogamy too, right? If you're feeling distanced from each other, it's like, what can you do for yourself? What can you ask your partner to do? What can you collaborate on? Um, yeah. Wow. That's, <laughs> and you can tell that those words are all from your clients as well. That's making me laugh the way that you're rattling them off. I'm like, you have sat through the same thing every time, you know, like humans are no different. We just, you know, we have all the same things. They just appear and like you say, bubble up it in different, um, in different disguises. That's so great. Well, people in non-monogamous relationships can get down on themselves when it's not instantly flawlessly working or if it's like hard or challenging. And I'm like, well, listen, like, you know, you've been together for eight or nine years. Has every single day of your monogamous partnership been like easy and great? No. So like <laughs> you can still connect or consent to this larger picture. Like we really do. We both want to be non-monogamous. I always, anytime my clients are having an issue in their non-monogamous relationship, I say, do you still want to be non-monogamous? And yeah, they'll be like, yeah. yes. And I'm like, great. Okay. So <laughs> then let's deal with some of this other stuff. Cause if it isn't like, if you're like, no, I really don't want to do this, then that's a different issue. Yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. Also relatable. <laughs> Great chat. <laughs> 
Well, it's also true of your sex life, right? I have people come in a lot that usually women who are like, I don't really want to have sex that much. Or my, I have a low libido. And I'm like, okay, do you, do you want to want to have sex? Or do you really just not want to have sex? Because those are going to be two different things that we're going to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to us about that because you did mention that right at the start. And like we know from chatting with our audience that like one of the biggest things um, that would improve their sex life is if A, they had a higher libido or their partner's libido matched theirs. What are some of the tools that you give your clients in those situations? Yeah. So the book has a whole chapter or two devoted just to this issue because it is so common. Um, But the short version of it is that usually I like to give a little lecture about libido in general. So like there's a few things like we're like, oh, low sex drive or low libido. Okay, what does that mean? It could be your medication is hurting your sex drive. It could be stress. It could be an unresolved relationship dynamic that you all have not tackled. It could be that the sex you're having isn't satisfying. It could be that you're not having the kind of sex you want to have. Why would I want to have sex if the sex I'm having sucks? Yeah. Yeah. You know, like that's not appetizing to me. Like, why would I want to eat something that doesn't sound good to me? It's the same idea. Am I making food that sounds good? Is appetizing that I'm driven to eat. (laughs) (laughs) Truth. And then I like to give a little lecture about high and low libido. So we're taught that, again, right, thinking about Paris Hilton eating a sexy burger on a car. We're taught that sex and high libido is correct and good for certain people. We're actually very trapped in this in this middle ground where it's like you can't want sex too much and you can't want sex too little. And the just right (laughs) totally depends on who you're talking to, who you are, and what community you're in. And that's just such a trap. It's like so awful. I talk about that in the book a lot too. But so in this dynamic, typically, it's mostly like straight couples. The dude wants more sex and the woman doesn't. And the woman's like, if only I could just want sex more, everything would be solved. And that's not a great framing because it positions the issue as residing in her and it's her problem and she's broken. It also positions the issue as like a high sex drive is good and a low sex drive is bad. And in reality, we're like, okay, you have a desire discrepancy. If we look at sex, just statistically speaking, it's not going to be very common, especially for a long-term couple, to want to have sex at the same time, in the same place, in the same way, at the same frequency for years at a time. That doesn't make any sense, right? Like, it's just not the way people are wired. And I think people get kind of, like, amped up on new relationships because you have all these, like, your brain chemicals in your physical body is firing chemicals that are like, go get that person, mate, mate, mate. Yeah. (laughs) Right? It's like deliverance (laughs) stage. You're, like, blowing off work. You're, like, not sleeping as much as you should. You're, like, not doing your skincare routines, whatever. You're just, like, having a bunch of sex. If you're into sex, not everybody's into sex. But that limerence phase can kind of brainwash people into being, like, this is the way it should be. And then we have TV and movies telling us, yep, this is the way it should be. And it's just, like, no. (laughs) It's not true. Yeah. So... A lot of libido mismatch, I like to do this thing called externalizing the problem. And that is when we look at the libido mismatch as the issue and it's a third entity in your relationship. So it's not so-and-so's fault that they have a high libido. It's not so-and-so's fault that they have a low libido. This is a mismatch issue. How are you going to collaborate on solving this mismatch? 
and what are the factors that are contributing to it? Because it cannot just be like, I just need to want sex more. There's so much <laughs> other stuff that goes into it. Yeah. Yeah. Especially Absolutely. in a gendered way. I'm not trying to have like a dude over here just sitting pretty doing nothing, being like, I'm totally perfect because I want sex all the time. It's just like, no, man, like this is not the way. There are so many societal and educational reasons why that has been perpetuated. And yeah, it's just, absolutely. it's not the way. No, I agree. And so then, and I mean, I guess it just comes back down to communication, does it? Or what are some mm-hmm. other, you know, what are, what are some of the starting points that you have um, in order to kind of get that across? Because again, that's a really hard issue, you know, potentially, mm-hmm. or sorry, particularly if, like you're saying, you know, for example, if the woman feels like they're broken or something like, they're not going to really want to bring that up, are they? Right. I love the term desire discrepancy too. Mm, yeah. Like it's, yeah. I think about desire discrepancies in two different ways. And I talk about this in the book too. One way is I want to have more sex and you want to have less sex. And another way is like, I want to have kinky sex. You want to have vanilla sex. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like type of sex and also frequency of sex. And I think there are ways to work with that for everybody and I think it's more workable than people think it is I just think we haven't been taught how to talk very deeply about sex so we stay very surface right so if I'm like I'm into leather and you're not oh that means that this isn't gonna work yeah rather than being like (laughs) okay well what is it about leather that does it for me like Uh, what is it like what does it mean to me? What does it do for me? Is there a way for me to get the essence of this thing without actually doing this thing if it's a hard limit for you? Or why is leather a hard limit for you? Like what kind of contributing factor, like help me understand. So it's not just like, I want to do this thing. I don't want to do this thing. It's just too simple. And that's not, sex isn't simple ever. Yeah. So do you believe that couples can get through this mismatch um, and come out? With a compromise, I guess. That's Mm -hmm. kind of what they're going for, right? Mm -hmm. To get a compromise that they're both happy with. Yeah. So in the book, too, I I rag on compromise a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) So I I talk about how I don't like – I don't like the instant sort of phrase, compromise is key, because Mm -hmm. people are taught that if I do this and then you do that, it's like a tit-for-tat exchange model, right? Like – If I do anal, then you'll agree to wear the leather thing. And that's not really like... No, that's not... Like my personal philosophy and values around sex ed is that it's consent forward and it's pleasure-based and it's honest about what you're really into. And so if we're doing this tit-for-tat model, none of that stuff is available. If we're doing more of a conscious compromise where we understand why is this important to me? What would it mean to me if I never could do this in my whole life? What would it mean for me if I were to try this because I know it's important to you? Am I violating myself in that moment? Or am I doing something that's just kind of scary that I've been told is shameful? Maybe that shame isn't real, right? There's so many things to go into and we just kind of like don't have the space or the permission or the tools to talk of that deeply about it. I love it. That's such a different way. I haven't heard someone talk about it in that way before. I think that explains it perfectly and it sounds like um yeah that's a great solution for people going through that issue yeah also people tend to solve it a lot because because they aren't looking at the contextual factors that are impacting libido right Right. so it's like let's say your low libido issue is actually that and the example i give in the book is that there's like a 
there's a desire mismatch going on between a couple because one of them has started having erectile dysfunction and has been embarrassed and doesn't want to talk about it. So he's just been avoiding sex. And she is piling on the lingerie, lighting the candles, buying the sex toys, trying to be interesting to him, and it isn't working. So she feels dejected and undesirable and bad. And they're just sort of like continuing to not speak about it. Mm. But if they come into therapy or if they read this book or if they actually just talk about it or whatever, suddenly you're like, oh, actually, now we understand what the actual issue is and we can talk about all of these things in a different way and part of that is expanding your idea of what a successful sexual interaction actually looks like amazing i love it um and just to wrap up i mean we've talked about your book a little bit but where are some other places that people can find you on socials your website and so on yeah so i am at the v spot so the underscore v like vagina the v spot on instagram (laughs) that's where i am most of the time so i i will say I specialize in informational carousels. So like you're saying, like, how do I open my relationship? I have like little carousels that are like, how do I open my relationship? And it'll give you tips and stuff like that. I love it. Oh my, gosh, my book can be purchased anywhere you buy books. I don't know actually how you get it in New Zealand. I'm sure there's a way. There'll be <laughs> yeah, a way I'm gonna online. Fi- I'm going to find that way though. And it's yeah. also on Audible. Um, there's an audiobook version. Um, if you want to work with me, my website is yanatalenthicks.com and you can find all my things there. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. That was so yeah, helpful and very me. insightful too. Oh, great. I know. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just really it's been a minute. Really great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, that's amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much, Yana. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of the Girls Get Off podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Girls Get Off. You can join our Facebook group, Girls Get Off Uncensored. I think we've got more than 20,000 members in there at the moment. And if you'd like to leave us a rating or review, that always helps us get higher in the charts. And every week we'll pick the most creative review to win a missing mini. Thanks for listening. <laughs>